is uh, Paul. I'm here with uh, Frank Dugan, and we wanted to do part two of our discussion on communion. Um, Frank has been uh, a key influence on my understanding of communion. I have to say that when Frank did this research and presented it, it, uh, it as with most things, it takes me a little time to, to make the shift, but uh, he certainly convinced me of an alternative understanding. So tonight we, we wanted to cover uh, several areas, but uh, one, of the, one of the things that uh, Frank has researched and talked about is the sense in which uh, the Old Testament and the Old Testament sacrifices are a bit of a, a counter or an undoing of the Egyptian or uh, the, the, the systems that are surrounding them. Have I said that right, Frank? Yeah, sure. So the, the sacrificial system in, uh, in Leviticus and, and really just the whole account of what we see unfolding in Exodus and in, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, we have uh, the Jewish people having spent quite a bit of time in Egypt and uh, taking on a lot of their false ideas. It's not not very long into their march away from Egypt that the Israelites fall into uh, doubt and fear. They want to go back to Egypt. They want to live under the king who at least assured that they had food to eat and uh, a place to go to work and uh, you know, even though it was slavery, uh, at least they had homes and food. Uh, and as Moses went up onto the mountain and he took a little bit too long, they decided to take matters into their own hand and, and uh, take the plunder from Egypt that God handed to them and uh, fashioned a calf <laughs> and began to worship it. Um, now, what's interesting is when Moses went up and he came down with the first set of the, the tablets there, um, there wasn't this whole Levitical sacrificial system. It hadn't been developed at that point. It only comes into play after that golden calf incident. And um, a lot of Jewish tradition, a lot of Christian tradition attests to this idea uh, all the way back from the Midrashim to Philo, Josephus, and uh, I'm skipping tons of names here, but going up to the Christian era with Athanasius, uh, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen, Eusebius, etc., all the way up to Augustine and uh, Thomas Aquinas even, uh, all agreed that uh, the purpose of the sacrifices was to directly counter the tradition of Egypt, to reprogram the minds of the Israelites to see the vanity of the pagan gods around them. And it, it's several different forms uh, that this takes place. One of them is that the animals that they would have eaten and sacrificed in Egypt were the ones that were declared unclean in Israel. They weren't allowed to eat them. They weren't allowed to sacrifice them. And then the ones that they would have revered in Egypt are the ones that have been declared clean and would be sacrificed and would be eaten. So just a complete mind shift, an upturning and an overturning of their previous context. And, and really, a, a whole the whole thing, all the books that Moses is generally attributed with either writing or editing or collecting or however you want to interpret uh, the history of the first uh, five books, um, from Genesis on, 
the whole history gives new context. The days of the week in most in most uh, countries, you know, ancient civilizations, they're named after gods, and we even carry that today in our name: Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, um, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, they're not named after gods. They're the first day, the second day, the seventh day, and and you know, the seventh day is Sabbath, rest. And so, mm-hmm. the context of the naming of the days of the week, all the way down to mm-hmm. what they could eat, what was clean and unclean. All of that was intended to overturn their previous context of idolatry and give them a new history, a new context, a new culture. I mean, this sounds a lot. I just uh, have been writing on Genesis, and this seems to accord with my understanding of, you know, if you put Genesis together with the Gospel of John, uh, that Genesis is, I think, clearly teaching creation ex nihilo. Uh, and that it is uh, clearly not the way that creation myths normally function. That is, that with most creation myths, there is a, a struggle, or a, uh, actually a god is often slain, and out of the blood and body of the god for you know uh, the the Babylonian creation myth in the Enuma Elish, it's the canopy of the heavens is actually a body of the God. Uh, that's, that is typical, uh, and I think almost, you could say, uh, pervasive in Genesis, and if we're going to include Genesis and Exodus together, that fits uh, with what you're saying, that the entire picture then is that the Israelites, you're saying, in their sacrifices or in uh, the practices, that it's in fact a counter-sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have, I mean, with Genesis, it's a very, you, you cover such a broad amount, and it just narrows down, right? I mean, you start with the whole universe, and then it drives down to one person, Abraham, right? And then that Abraham starts turning into uh, this nation and this, and now here it's the rebirth of the nation really Mm -hmm. is, is what it is. Um, because they had already become a a fairly substantial people. Um, but you know, through famine and and their suffering, you know, they, they really grew in Egypt. They became a, a, a massive amount of people. Yeah. One that, you know, the Pharaoh feared even just from sheer number. Mm. And, and so this is kind of like, you know, the beginning of the story, it's, it's all about giving that context that we need to understand what God's work is. And the Israelites themselves, just as we as Christians today look back in Israel for our context, for our understanding of what Jesus was about and what the kingdom of God is and what our future holds, so too the people of Israel needed that context, the new history, the new origins, the new everything, a, a completely different culture uh, mm-hmm. in, which to, in which to understand the difference between them and the rest of the world. I think the difference between them and us, uh, or, you know, between Israel at this time and and us now, is that uh, at the time of Israel, the focus was on being set apart kind of in a a more typical sense as a nation uh, that had, you know, all all the, it was just like any other nation, except that, you know, it was a holy nation, Hmm. uh, to now where we understand the, the, the concept of the kingdom of God to not be limited to just Israel uh, or one particular country or area, but the whole world is currently under uh, the reign of Christ. 
And so for us, rather than cutting ourselves off and just kind of being a um, isolated group of people that's holy, uh, we are trying to bring that holiness back out into the whole world actively. Listen, I know we did it a bit, and but I'm a little slow and need uh, refreshing. Can we go through then and talk about what is happening in Passover? And of course, what we're working our way to is uh, the origins of uh, communion. But can you, uh, and the significance then of the blood, and perhaps again reiterate what a misunderstanding has been surrounding that. Sure. Uh, well, I think the main thing with Passover is to understand that uh, it didn't start with the ritual. It started with the actual day that God was bringing them out of Egypt, that final uh, uh, you know, plague of, of killing the firstborn and, um, of Egypt, that is. And uh, the way that they would escape that is by you know, putting the, the blood on the doorposts. And so it was a rushed event. They were to eat quickly. You know, by the end of the, you know, they were going to leave the next day very quickly. Pharaoh wanted them out fast. And so the reason the meal, you know, they had uh, a very real danger. Uh, they were, it was very immediate and it was a very real thing. And they all understood what it was about. Um, and, and the point of the ritual was to remember that, uh, that defining moment in their history of them becoming a people and leaving Egypt. Um, and primarily that included God's work of, of, uh, overturning the tyranny of Pharaoh and, you know, bringing them out of Egypt. Um, so <clears throat> again, like what, what I talked about last time with Exodus 24 and the, you know, the blood of the covenant and how that was, uh, uh, when Moses and the elders were eating in the presence of God after Israel, uh, you know, swore the oath and, and, were entered into the covenant with God to become a people. It's kind of the defining moment. Um, that's what we have Jesus doing that as well. You know, this is the moment where we become a people, more or less. Uh, this is the establishment of the nation. Here's the dinner in our presence. Um, the 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes, just like the elders of Israel, Moses. Um, so, again, with Jesus and uh, that the Lord's Supper, and then communion, if we want to use different terms for what we're doing today. Um, you know, we're not, the, the communion didn't start first. It was the establishment of the kingdom in a very real night right before the crucifixion, right? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> it's not uh, that this ritual has some kind of special power. It's commemorative. Um, and so to the blood, specifically, uh, if we at least, are, if we're talking about the sacrifices, you know, how... Uh, the blood of the animal, you know, it's sprinkled on the people, especially, say, in the Day of Atonement, which we talked about last time. Uh, the blood of the, of the goat is um, uh, splattered on the people. And uh, if we were to kind of look at this, uh, the sacrifices less as a ritual that has some kind of mystical power, which is, I think, what we tend to do historically uh, with our Anselmian tradition or whatever you want to blame it on, um, the, myst the mystical approach, uh, that blood has some kind of special power. Um, but if we were to step away from that and instead kind of look at this other tradition, this idea that the sacrifices are to reprogram the minds of the Israelites and, you know, whoever, us today, um, the purpose of the blood is not so much 
because it has power of itself, but because of what it represents. Blood is obviously representative of life, right? I mean, when Abel's killed by Cain or murdered by Cain, it's, you know, his blood is crying out from the ground to me, right? Mm-hmm. Typically, if you're bleeding in any substantial amount, your life is going to be leaving you just as quickly. You know, mm-hmm. right, blood is important, and uh, it, it typically s- signifies life. And uh, usually, when it's spilt, you know, if you die of most normal natural causes of old age, you're, you're typically not going to have a pool of blood under you, right? It's it's more of the breath of God leaves you. Blood is almost always a sign that something wrong has happened. Some murder or some violence was done. You know, not always, obviously, but uh, mm-hmm. typically blood is a sign of some kind of violence. And so if we take life wrongfully extracted and then we're splattering it on people, what we're representing is responsibility. This evil is done and we're all part of it. We're all the cause of it. And I think that's more what the blood is supposed to be representing. It's it's this outward sign for the Israelites to realize that their wickedness has caused this to happen. This blood is being spilt because of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the whole purpose of all the sacrifices is to make things right. And uh, it, it just to further that example of, of how wrong things have been, how responsible all of us are uh, for the wrong that's occurring. And so the blood on the doorpost, but then can you carry that on then into uh, how that uh, relates to the uh, image of blood in the communion? Sure. And, and yeah, and again, the same thing. If, we, if we're thinking that this blood has mystical power, we need the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, and uh, that's what gives us this forgiveness and atonement, uh, then, you know, that if that's your theology, that's you're going to view that as very important. But if you are carrying on that the same logic as as uh, you know the rest of these things and what these sacrifices were more likely intended, um, again the blood of Christ. What we're we're recognizing, Christ didn't die for uh, some inexplicable reason. He died because of the, if you want to call the scapegoat mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. The mimetic rivalry leading up to violence, the fear of the Pharisees and the Sadducees of, uh, uh, an insurrectionist, uh, you know, political leader that was going to remove the protection of Rome. You know, there is real fears. There is, uh, this, uh, misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God was, uh, real social problems that caused this, uh, fear and violence, you know, much like Rene Girard describes, Mm-hmm. It's the mechanism of sin. It's sin and death. It's the, uh, you know, the perception of a zero sum game when it comes to life. And um, and uh, so, what the the blood is is demonstrating is the violence, right? And Christ mm-hmm. exposes that he's innocent. He's the Son of God, and like with the prophets before him, they're going to kill him because of it, mm-hmm. uh, because they're not understanding. They're blaming him for the problems that they are all responsible for. Which is really ironic because, uh, you know, the Israelite sacrifices are fairly clear that the goat is innocent, you know, the bulls are innocent, the animals didn't do anything. Uh, And it's pretty clear that, you know, what we're sacrificing is something that's innocent and doesn't deserve it. And, uh, 
they kind of acknowledge that, you know, it, isn't it fitting that one man might die to save us all? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, they see that. And I just like the exasperation, you know, when Lazarus was raised from the dead <laughs> and uh, the, the Pharisees are like, if he keeps if he keeps doing all these miracles, people are going to believe him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the blood of Christ, it, it was, you know, it's representative of uh, what has happened, the wrong, the results of our wrong. And I think the reason that we're going to, if, if we were to continue uh, in that pattern of taking a, a, a special moment in our, in our, our celebration of communion, if we were to take that special moment and say, you know, this is the body and the blood, uh, the purpose of that is is not to extract some kind of mystical power for the sake of atonement and forgiveness. Mm. It's to remember how close we are to causing that kind of evil. How close we are to bringing about sacrifice, not just of Christ, but of anyone that gets in the way of whatever our conception of the zero-sum game is in the medic rivalry. And then uh, it, what you're tying that into then is that uh, the the as that sort of reminder in the midst of an agape uh, communion fellowship is uh, here's the here's uh, a kind of uh, warning to you, but here in Christ then we see the alternative, not this. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, not the sacrifice of the other, but the sacrifice of Christ is what we are taking up and celebrating as we recognize the body of Christ. Yeah, and as with the Apostle Paul always writing, you know, the cross doesn't just mean Christ dying, it means cross, Christ raising from the dead. And our hope is that rather than being willing to sacrifice the other because it's our duty or our job or what's socially necessary, uh, we are willing to sacrifice ourselves because we have the example and the same hope that Christ had of if we do that, God is faithful. God has the power over death. God has the power of life and resurrection. And if we die doing right, then, you know, he's going to honor us and our, our faith won't be in vain. You know, Psalm 22. <laughs> and so you get a you get a whole different uh, picture then. Uh, you know, th- for example, a passage like 1 Corinthians that talking about recognizing the body of Christ. Well, you don't look at the little piece of bread and the little cup. That's not what he's talking about, I presume. But he's saying, recognize the body of Christ uh, in your brothers and sisters surrounding you, but also recognize then uh, how this body has been constituted is then in and through the person and work of Christ. And that's what's being brought out Am I am I taking it too far? Is that the point there? I'm on board with you so far. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know the whole Catholic discussion or the discussion, you know, where is the real presence? Uh, that's more. That's the the whole misconstrual of a kind of magical thing, and then also of a misunderstanding of and and here remind me again. Then we we tend to focus on forgiveness. And your point is that's not the focus on the blood and, and the body. Yeah, 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 yes, yeah, uh, yeah. Throughout, I mean, uh, the Day of Atonement is really clear that uh, you know the goat that lives is the one that carries the sin out into the desert. So God didn't need any death for that to happen. Jewish 
uh, Jewish theology makes a distinction between forgiveness and atonement. Uh, they're two separate concepts. Atonement simply means to make clean. I just mentioned the whole uh, that the blood represents life and responsibility for bringing about this death and, and violence. Well, let, let me uh, ask you then uh, to reiterate then, bring the what you've said about the sacrifices being a reversal of their of what's there in uh, Egypt, and then bring that forward then into the communion. And is that is that also then a reversal in the way that you're describing it? Yeah. So just in the same way that uh, in the Old Testament we have these sacrifices, the blood representing the violence of the people bringing about the sacrifice, the need for this blood, and the shared responsibility for causing that. Communion commemorates that. It, it, it reminds us how how close we are to being responsible for that same kind of violence. You know, if we do the, the, the typical uh, example of, you know, Nazi Germany, right? <laughs> uh, whether it was the architects that, that designed the concentration camps and those facilities or the rocket scientists making V2 missiles, you know, they're just doing their job. I just wanted to be a good architect. I wanted to be a good scientist, uh, a good medical researcher. You know, just because it was socially accepted at the time doesn't make it okay. Rather than being willing to give up whatever that party may be, whether it's Jews or or uh, whatever, we would rather than sacrificing the other for the sake of the self and for the sake of the social cause, we, mm-hmm. like Christ, will sacrifice ourselves, take that violence upon ourselves because a God will be faithful, you know, just uh, like in Psalm 22. And you keep referencing Psalm 22. Run down just very briefly. What's the significance there? Well, uh, that's what when Christ said, uh, my father, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Uh, that was the opening line of Psalm 22, which, again, with this blood theology, what will typically, I've heard a lot of sermons talk about this, they'll say, oh, uh, this was the moment when Christ took all the sin into himself of the world, and God can't be in the presence of sin, so God had to leave Christ, and so it was just the empty body of a man suffering and taking all that punishment, Mm -hmm. and uh, there you have it, which, of course, is nonsense. but uh, again, with you know Anselmian atonement, that's where you're gonna you're gonna go to. But uh, rather, if you read the whole psalm, uh, and, and it's it's typical in, in Jewish literature. You know, we have the names of the Bible, uh, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, etc. But in the Hebrew, um, they didn't actually have names for the books. They used the first couple words at the beginning of each book. So you had names for books that were like uh, you know into the land or, you know, whatever. I can't remember any of offhand, but it's... Uh, was Genesis in the beginning? No, because that's the Greek beginning. Oh. It's actually different. <laughs> oh. uh, it, it's, uh, I can't remember. I wish I could. I should have looked it up before we started. But uh, it, it's typical in, in the Jewish writings. You know, you refer to the work by the first couple words of the work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so again, here with the psalm, him quoting the first phrase is no accident. He's intending to refer to the whole thing. If you're re- to read the whole Psalm 22, uh, it's it's just talking about this suffering. There's all kinds of messianic passages in there that we you know, usually associate. Don't we don't realize that they're all in that same same Psalm? Uh, but uh, just going through suffering, and in the end, you know, it's reflecting on how his ancestors put their hope in God, and they were brought out of Egypt. His, you know, 
God was faithful. Those who put their faith in him are not put to shame. And, uh, you know, it, it ends with that faith and that hope that God's going to make things right. Mm-hmm. So Jesus mentioning that wasn't this description of ultimate suffering. It was that in the expression of faith right up to the last moment, kind of like in Braveheart, you know, mm-hmm. it, him crying out freedom. But instead of crying out freedom, it was hope, right? Mm-hmm. God will make this right. And he did. So let me let me see if I've I've got this, and please correct me if if I'm if I'm wrong. Uh, the what is taking place then in the sacrifices and in the communion is precisely to mark a reversal of what you know in a Girardian understanding. Instead of being scapegoaters, uh, that it's an undoing of the sacrifice of the other, and then the recogni- recognition of a. I mean, what you're describing is then uh, in the communion itself is the proclamation of a nonviolent peaceableness, that the way that people usually constitute themselves is in and through violence, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, a Girardian, you know, you're kind of blind violence. Uh, Christ has brought that out into the open, that this is the way that people uh, normally constitute themselves, and that this is counter to that over and against that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's uh, exciting stuff, that instead of being those who shed blood, uh, the communion should be a continual proclamation of we are those who, in fact, uh, take up crosses. We're not among those who put our, who would put the other on the cross or sacrifice the other. Yeah, and actually, if you're if you're fine with moving on, uh, that's a good transition to one other thing I wanted to get to, and that was to read a little bit more from the Didache. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so I, I quoted a little bit from the Didache, which uh, it was actually one of the less potent passages regarding uh, the Eucharist. And, uh, but I should probably start because probably not everybody has read it. Uh, so I just kind of want to say the way that the Didache begins, it describes two ways of life. And the way it opens, I love it. It's there are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. It, just the, the way it begins is the way of life is this. First, you shall love God who made you. And second, love your neighbors yourself, and do not do to another what you would not want done to you. The meaning of these sayings is this, bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies, fast as those who persecute you, for what reward is there for loving those who love you? Do not the heathens do the same? But you should love those who hate you, and then you will have no enemies. And it, it goes on and go on and, mm-hmm. and on. Uh, but the, the, the reason that's important is because the whole context of what the Didache is talking about is that there's these two ways of life. And if you're a part of the kingdom of God, you're the way of life. If you're not, you're the way of death. And so that pulls into communion because, and maybe I'll talk a little bit more about this uh, as we go further along, but, you know, the early church before the Constantinian shift, before, you know, 312 AD or whatever exact date you want to put on it, they had uh, a much more stringent acceptance policy as to uh, when you were allowed to come to assembly. It was not an open uh, assembly where 
we were seeker friendly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the deacons were kind of the bouncers at the door, checking if you were properly discipled and baptized before you could come in. And uh, they had their reasons. We can get into that later. But but the point is that if you came together to this assembly and you were participating in this Eucharist, you understood the difference between the way of life and the way of death. And the reason you were here for the Eucharist is because you were one who lived the way of life and you were coming here together with others. And so uh, later on, uh, if you want to call them chapters, they're really very, very short. Uh, but in the chapter 9 and 10, uh, it reads like this. Concerning the Eucharist, give thanks this way. First, concerning the cup, we thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. Next, concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. To you is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Allow no one to eat or drink of your Eucharist unless they have been baptized in the name of the Lord. For concerning this, the Lord has said, Do not give what is holy to dogs. After the Eucharist, when you are filled, give thanks this way. We thank you, Holy Father, for your holy name in which you enshrined in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality that you have made known to us through Jesus your servant. To you be the glory forever. You, Master Almighty, have created all things for your name's sake. You gave food and drink to all people for your enjoyment, that they might give thanks to you. But to us, you freely give spiritual food and drink and life eternal through Jesus, your servant. Before all things, we thank you because you are mighty. To you be the glory forever. Remember, Lord, your church. Deliver it from all evil and make it perfect in your love and gather it from the four winds sanctified for your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and glory forever. Let grace come and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the son of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not holy, let him repent. Aranatha, amen. But permit the prophets to make thanksgiving as much as they desire. So there's a lot of material in there. Yeah. But before we get into it, just a quick note. Notice how after the Eucharist, when you are filled, give thanks this way. So obviously we're talking about a full meal here. <laughs> and is the uh, is the reference to the uh, those the the you know that which is scattered has been brought together uh, to the feeding of the five thousand? Uh, that's a good question. I'm kind of thinking, depending on how you date this. Uh, the broken bread being s- scattered all over the hills and gathered together. It could be a couple different things, but I, I think uh, to me it sounds kind of like the reflection of what Paul talks about with the great mystery in Ephesians of the Gentiles becoming one with Israel. Uh, uh, that makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. But what's interesting is the bread in the Eucharist is not being talked about as the actual real presence body of Christ, but rather the broken bread scattered over the hills, gathered together, become one. So let your church be gathered in your kingdom. I mean, obviously it, it's the body, you know, recognize the body of Christ. It's the people. <laughs> so yeah, that, that it, uh, we can clearly date a point that the communion is going to become something and there's the, the, that is going to become magical and, or at least it's going to become sacramental uh, in the way that Roman Catholicism thinks of sacramental. 
Yeah. After this book, obviously. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, and the other thing, of course, has to do with who can take communion. And it sounds right. like they're putting fairly clear restrictions on that. Yeah, so uh, we we've all heard the term catechism, I'm sure, and uh, what we usually assume is is in the you know the Roman Catholic tradition of, of catechism, but uh, catechism just means uh, you know it's basically discipleship. It's it's the teaching, and um, in the early church, when we read Acts, what we see a lot of is it seems like near instantaneous conversions, right? So when we talk about catechism as being necessary for uh, prior to baptism, we we feel like that's kind of unbiblical. But if we think about the context of what we're reading in Acts, these are primarily Jewish people that are being converted. They already have the context. They've already led a devout life, trying to serve God the best they could. They've already memorized most of Scripture, understood it, studied it their whole lives, went to synagogue. And then the few Gentiles that we encounter, like Cornelius, he was a proselyte, you know, he was already studying the law, he was familiar with it, and, uh, you know, he was already a, a lover of God. So he already had the context, he already understood what, you know, the way of life versus the way of death. He just needed that, the revelation of what Christ did, just as the Jews did. Um, so he had that context. As the church expands, and as time goes on, you go from primarily and predominantly Jewish to being primarily and predominantly Gentile and pagan. And with that, you have new problems. One, that they don't know that rich history of Israel, like we started talking about, the sacrificial system, the new week names for the weekdays, the context of creation, the context of absolutely everything, the moral values, just even understanding what sin is, that the body is something worth saving and that the soul does not have immortality innately and resurrection is necessary, all that, all that, everything, the whole context of Judaism was not a part of these new people that were now making up the majority of the church. So in order for them to effectively understand what they were, what they were committing to when they wanted to become members of the kingdom and they wanted to be baptized, a, a more rigorous regimen of discipleship and teaching was necessary. And so what the early church would do is uh, you know, they would have key passages that they would learn and uh, memorize and understand and go through and teach on them, and they would be closely supervised by mentors who would be watching their patterns of behavior. It was really a whole, a holistic approach to redefining the person. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until after that process where they could see that they were committed to becoming a new person, committed to not just understanding, uh, but also putting into practice the way of life as opposed to the way of death, until they had fulfilled that, to a level that the local church was confident in that person's willingness to truly convert, uh, they would not baptize them. They would not allow it. They would not, uh, and they would not be allowed to go into the congregation, uh, the assembly, and to partake in the Eucharist. And I, that changed, and we can go into detail. Actually, I have a blog on on the Forging Plowshares website. Uh, it's a sermon. Uh, I think I titled it "Getting Political," where I went into detail on this. And so, you know, the, the listeners can go there for more information. But mm -hmm. um, the Constantinian shift happened, and that's what changed it. You went from Christianity being marginalized and persecuted and you know uh, ridiculed, but thriving 
growing rapidly to it becoming what it eventually became corrupt and uh, you know, full of people that are not devout, not willing to change their lives and living just like everyone else. When Christianity became legalized, then it became incentivized and then it became mandatory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know, that through that pattern now, everyone's a Christian. There's no standards. There's no, no requirement to change your life. You're just, it's the state religion. And uh, that process is what, I think is largely responsible for shifting everything about not just what they believed and what the doctrine is, but also the culture of the church, the way the Eucharist was practiced, what it meant. And, uh, but even just the, the, the church, uh, assembly was in acts pretty clearly. There was only really three things that mattered. And that was the prayer, you know, very deep, intensive prayer, the teaching of the apostles and the breaking bread. And what you get going forward is really more like a theatrical experience, which of course makes sense in the context of the pagan religion that got dragged into Christianity uh, as that discipleship process eroded. That it becomes more theater than, than discipleship. Yeah, because the people in the church don't have the the depth of understanding or the depth of commitment to get anything out of a, the kind of church that you would have had in, in the first couple centuries. Hmm. Um, they didn't care so much about the things that the church cared about, like adopting abandoned babies, purchasing the freedom of slaves, risking your life going into bedside hospital care to plague victims who were your persecutors and other stuff like that, that the early church did. You wanted to, show off your expensive clothes or sing songs that were nice or whatever. You know, not to say there's no singing. Obviously, there's singing in the church, but it obviously was not as emphasized as it is in the theatrical experience of the church later. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of the readers have probably heard of or read uh, Pagan Christianity by Frank Viola, which, uh, you know, you could pick apart some of the details, but it, it's a pretty good broad overview of, of some of those things and their origins. You know, I I have that book, and I I can't I can't claim to have I've never read it. I've I was gifted with a copy. Uh, tell me very quick, what is what is Frank Veal? Is that is he running down then the the way in which uh, these pagan practices uh, were were taken up into the church? Yeah, so Frank Viola is uh, kind of a an originate. There's there's kind of two people involved two major people involved in the movement of the uh, organic church, like the house church movement in America. And he's one branch of it. And uh, so what he's kind of doing is looking at a typical institutional church's practices and just kind of trying to peel it back historically and find its origin in pagan practice Mm -hmm. rather than in in authentic biblical Christianity, which Mm -hmm. I know that you're having a conversation with John Toddy that might be up as a podcast at some point or another about uh, exactly to what level we can restore, you know, or or if that's even really the right goal, uh, to restore the practice of the assembly in the Bible, which may be missing the point. Uh, It's not so much the practice of the assembly in itself, but rather the practices that the assembly did throughout Mm -hmm. their life that is Mm -hmm. the key. Uh, but with that said, uh, there are a lot of things that are distracting in our current structure that could easily be done away with without any sense of loss. Uh, are you are you then suggesting that in fact the Didache gives us the proper regard for both 
communion and baptism, uh, that we should, in fact, practice a closed communion? Yeah, so that's an interesting question, uh, but I think I can answer somewhat adequately, uh, although somewhat openly as well. Like with Jesus, if you, were to, if you look through the Gospels and look at what his teaching consisted of, there is very little dogmatic theology and very much practical theology. Not practical theology and what we usually mean by that, but practical in the sense that what you were believing was going to cause some kind of action in you, in the world. And so I think usually when we talk about open versus closed communion, what we're talking about is, okay, what doctrines are you going to believe in that are close enough for me to consider that you're theologically saved, whatever that would mean? Uh, you know, you're going to go to heaven. You know, you believe enough to go to heaven, uh, which I think is not the point of the Didache, right? It's the two ways of life. It's about practice. It's about doing the fruits of the Spirit, participating in the fruits of the Spirit, sacrificing yourself, not doing the things that are the fruits, you know, the unfruits of the Spirit. It's about living in this kingdom. And so I think the answer to your question is yes, but uh, we should close not just communion, but the entire assembly. The assembly, the purpose of the assembly is for the strengthening and the enriching and, uh, you know, the organization of the members of the kingdom of God so that they can be effective in the world. I think if we were to model what the early church did, you know, the assembly was not the place where evangelism happened. The assembly was where the those who already believed, who were already inculcated, who were already discipled, who were already committed, could really get that depth of interaction that they needed. There's plenty of other avenues where they could do the evangelism. Uh, but this was for the people who they knew they could trust, who they could be comfortable confessing their sins with, knowing that rather than being shamed, they would be forgiven. These are the people that they could assemble with, knowing that we all believe in the hope of resurrection, knowing that we all are seeking the same goal, and that is living like Christ. Uh, and there's no room for those who don't want to live that way to be in that ceremony, to be in that uh, assembly. Uh, you're describing a complete shift in our understanding of what church is about, what Christianity is about. Uh, this seems to be a, a proposal that would completely revolutionize, not just our practice of communion, but even our very conception of what it is we're doing. That does make one stop and pause, you know, well, uh, that has Christianity been so then uh, degraded by cultural forces uh, that uh, what you're describing is a uh, certainly a pure practice of the, the doctrines of Christ. Have we lost then an authentic Christianity outside of the, what you're describing? Well, that's a tricky question to ask, but I think what I found in my own life is this. If, if, you, if you take what I'm saying as a method, it would be just as stupid as any program that a megachurch would do. The method isn't the thing in and of itself. The law isn't the thing in and of itself. It's pointing to God. And what I, what I found is that, uh, you know, you could go to any church and you're going to find one or two or three or, or, I don't know, several people. You're going to find some people in there who are very devout, who are definitely living this way. And it's not that the church, the church structure or the institutional church or the way that we practice or the way that we do this or what songs we sing or whether we do or don't sing or whatever, uh, it's not that that prevents Christians from being Christians. It's just that um, 
it does not produce a really beneficial environment for the people who are really seeking depth. And so to me, I'm not here to say churches that do this are evil or churches who don't do it this way are doing it wrong. It's just, let, let's just think about it. Let's, let's recognize that what we're doing is not encouraging depth at all. And I think what, what, what I would say is that what we are doing in our church assemblies is not what the assemblies were about in early Christianity. Now, whether our goal should be to restore the assembly or not, you know, my personal opinion is just, you know, I like to clean house. <laughs> let's start fresh. Let's try it again. Mm. You know, uh, that's my personal take on it. And that's why I've, I've been involved in house church. But um, I, if, if we want to keep the, the weekly pilgrimage to, to the institutional building and participate in, in the whole theatrical experience that we have right now, that's fine. But make sure that you are getting that level of depth of uh, in some kind of assembly, whether it's a small group or something, where you're getting really good prayer, really good teaching, and really good fellowship meal, where you are fully celebrating this this uh, this thing that we have described here. And I, you know, I obviously I'm I'm asking this a bit uh, that clearly with what we're doing here at the uh, at the house Carpenter's house that. We we've uh, we have a fellowship uh, that I think is uh, trying to put into practice, trying to restore that understanding. But people ask me, well, then then what do you do? You know, if uh, you know, I've had students go out and they're working in churches, and I can't say that I have a clear idea other than to say, well, think of yourself as a, a missionary that you're trying to work and call people. And maybe there is the sense, though, that we need to come out of the church, the institutionalized church, at least not, maybe not physically, uh, but at least we need to recognize that a Christianity, uh, the Christianity of the New Testament and what you're describing uh, is, is a far cry then from the productions that we often witness on a Sunday morning. Yeah, I mean, I've struggled with that question myself, and I think I've asked you that question too, seeking your counsel. <laughs> I got that same vague answer. Uh, what I would caution to others out there in the same boat as, as I is that if you are going to take the missionary approach, be careful of two things. One, don't become too arrogant in thinking that you're going to be you're 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 there to save people who you know are. Uh, <laughs> lesser Christians than yourself. I feel like there's a lot of that in the organic church movement and uh, a lot of the people who promote that. Uh, aside from that, if you have hopes that people are going to respond to what you're saying outside of that service, be ready for disappointment. Uh, you know, I, I've, uh, I, I've done quite a few things in several churches in several different states where, you know, I would either fill in preaching or uh you know, do communion devotionals or do some Bible study or some kind of study. And I'll get great feedback on, on a sermon or something like, oh, you know, that was great. That was good. It was inspiring, you know, this and that. No change happens. <laughs> and we are so powerfully influenced by habit and tradition and routine. And I do think that there's a certain degree that as long as people are continuing to participate in these traditions and in these, these you know, rote practices, 
it's going to be very hard to break out of that routine. No matter how good the teaching, no matter how inspiring a message or how eye-opening or disillusioning some teaching would be, uh, it just, in, in, in the face of routine and tradition, it, it's powerless. And, and that's exactly why I think in the Constantinian shift, those changes in the church destroyed the culture of the church as it was in the first few centuries. Uh, that uh, is there no con continuum that uh, that that I and this is sort of my way of looking at it. Well, the church has always been there. It just may not be that it's immediately recognizable. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm not saying that. No. I, there's there's been Christians continuously since then, and there's been devout practice since then. Not you know not that the whole thing's a wash, but I think what you had in the first few centuries was you could look. And tell right away who is who. You're, you're, here are the people, here's those weird Christian people, and here's, you know, everybody else is not them. You know, there's a very clear way to tell who is who. Nobody would hang, you know, nobody would visit with them. Nobody wanted to be around them. They're, you know, they're the, the outcasts and those who would be ridiculed. Whereas today, I don't know, we're kind of getting more and more ridiculed, but it's not for the right reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's because we are just like everybody else. Mm -hmm except for lamer and uh, less cool, <laughs> even though we try to fit in and, and imitate very poorly the, the you know, the, the culture around us. There's, it's, it's hard to tell. How, how can, you can't just look at church and be like, oh, those people are going to be practicing great deeds and sacrificing themselves. No, you're going to have to, you're going to have to know each person to figure out which one is and which one isn't uh, devout. And I think what you're describing, though, is that, and maybe this is a, a good place to, to, to talk about, that there is just a joy and a thankfulness and a, you know, that in a participation in, a, in an agape, you know, fellowship where you've got a group of, maybe a very, and I, I assume that it usually is a fairly small group of like-minded people, that in fact, this then is part of the celebration that is supposed to be there in communion. Yeah. And I think that, that uh, you were going to say something about thankfulness or about thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. So I was just thinking, you know, because that we're, I was talking about, you know, that it's a thanksgiving offering and that's the model, that's the model of the Day of Atonement is, it, it might be good to spend a little bit of time talking about what the thanksgiving offering meant. So I think just a couple of things I missed out on when I talked about it last time. The Thanksgiving offering, you know, would be a response to some kind of life-threatening uh, event, whether it was sickness, travel, robbery, you know, war, whatever. Uh, you would feel indebted to God, and you wanted to make known to those around you what God had done, what He'd saved you from. So you'd, you'd take the the animal, usually it was an animal, uh, to the the priest, and they would. You tell him why, what you're what you're honoring, what you're thanking God for, and he'd take a portion of it, and he would eat it with his family, and then you would take the rest, and you know part of it was burnt to God, uh, but you you took the rest of that, and like with the Passover, which was also a Thanksgiving offering, uh, you would have to consume that meat before uh, sunrise. Anything left over would have to be burnt, and what you did with that meat, you know, say it was a bull. You know, I mean, there's no way even if you're the Duggar family, that you're going to eat that whole thing by yourself. And so what you would do is you would uh, you would call in as many neighbors and friends as, as could come, and 
while you were all eating this together, you would uh, be <clears throat> singing songs or telling the story of what God had done, uh, giving thanks to him and praising him. And so the whole meal was in the context of giving thanks to God for what he had done. And what's considered the sacrifice in that uh, in that type of offering is not the, the meat, not the animal. The sacrifice is the praise that all the people who are eating together were giving. I, I just kind of missed that in the last time, and I wanted to mm-hmm. bring that to the surface that, you know, that's how that, that's how that sacrifice was practiced in open praise and, and thanksgiving to God while eating together. So it's a feast. Yeah. <laughs> it's a feast. Everybody's happy when you're eating. Uh, yeah, and the, you have the, to eat as much as you can because you're going to burn whatever doesn't get eaten. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know that you've got so much on this, Frank, and uh, man, I think what you're describing is is uh, 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 so important. And uh, I've been, uh, I, I'm, I'm eager for you to put to, to start giving us a blog on that. But let's, uh, shall we plan to do uh, uh, another podcast then on? Is there a communion part three in there? Sure. Uh, there's there's always more things that could be covered. Uh, one of them that would be kind of interesting to get into would be a little bit more detail with Alexander Campbell and also uh, comparing him to a, a contemporary Catholic writer, uh, Scott Hahn. Uh-huh. It's kind of funny because even though separated by about 200 years, it's like they're writing to one another on opposite sides of the spectrum. So it'd be kind of fun to compare the two. <laughs> And uh, I mean, it's with Campbell that uh, I mean, I'm, this is for another another podcast. But yeah, that that he's he's talking about uh, some fairly revolutionary things that I think we've walked and lost. Yeah. Yep. Thank you so much, Frank. This is this has been a lot of fun. <laughs>